0: Chapter three, Section eight of the Greek View of Life by Goldsworthy Lowe's Dickinson. This Librivox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Martin Geeson. Chapter three, Section Eight. The Greek View of Woman In the preceding account we have attempted to give some conception of the Greek ideal for the individual man. It is now time to remind ourselves that that ideal was only supposed to be proper to a small class, the class of soldier-citizens, artisans and slaves as we have seen, had no participation in it. Neither, and that is our next point, had women. Nothing more profoundly distinguishes the Hellenic from the modern view of life than the estimate in which women were held by the Greeks. Their opinion on this point was partly the cause and partly the effect of that preponderance of the idea of the state on which we have already dwelt, and from which it followed naturally enough that marriage should be regarded primarily as a means of producing healthy and efficient citizens this view is best illustrated by the institutions of such a state as sparta where as we saw the woman was specially trained for maternity and connections outside the marriage tie were sanctioned by custom and opinion if they were such as were likely to lead to healthy offspring Further it may be noted that in almost every state the exposure of deformed or sickly infants was encouraged by law, the child being thus regarded from the beginning as a member of the state rather than as a member of the family. The same view is reflected in the speculations of political philosophers plato indeed in his republic goes so far as to eliminate the family relation altogether not only is the whole connection between men and women to be regulated by the state in respect both of the persons and of the limit of age within which they may associate but the children as soon as they are born are to be carried off to a common nursery there to be reared together undistinguished by the mothers who will suckle indifferently any infant that might happen to be assigned to them for the purpose here as in other instances plato goes far beyond the limits set by the current sentiment of the greeks and in his later work is reluctantly constrained to abandon his scheme of community of wives and children. Yet even there, he makes it compulsory on every man to marry between the ages of thirty and thirty-five, under penalty of fine and civil disabilities. Plato, no doubt, as we have said, exaggerates the opinions of his time but the view which he pushes to its extreme of the subordination of the family to the state was one as we have already pointed out which did predominate in greece it reappears in a soberer form in the treatise of aristotle he too would regulate by law both the age at which marriages should take place and the number of children that should be produced, and would have all deformed infants exposed. And here, no doubt, he is speaking in conformity, if not with the practice, at least with the feeling of Greece. The modern conception that the marriage relation is a matter of private concern, and that any individual has a right to wed, whom and when he will and to produce children at his own discretion regardless of all considerations of health and decency was one altogether alien to the greeks in theory at least and to some extent in practice as for example in the case of sparta they recognised that the production of children Was a business of supreme import to the state, and that it was right and proper that it should be regulated by law with a view to the advantage of the whole community. And if now we turn from considering the family in its relation to the state to regard it in its relation to the individual we are struck once more by a divergence from the modern point of view, or rather from the view which is supposed to prevail, particularly by writers of fiction, at any rate in modern English life. In ancient Greece, so far as our knowledge goes, there was little or no romance connected with the marriage tie marriage was a means of producing legitimate children that is how it is defined by demosthenes and we have no evidence that it was ever regarded as anything more in athens we know that marriages were commonly arranged by the father much as they are in modern france on grounds of age property connection and the like And without any regard for the inclination of the parties concerned. And an interesting passage in Xenophon indicates a point of view quite consonant with this accepted practice. God, he says, ordained the institution of marriage, but on what grounds? Not in the least for the sake of the personal relation that might be established between the husband and wife but for ends quite external and indifferent to any affection that might exist between them first for the perpetuation of the human race secondly to raise up protectors for the father in his old age thirdly to secure an appropriate division of labour the man performing the outdoor work the woman guarding and superintending at home and each thus fulfilling duly the function for which they were designed by nature this eminently prosaic way of conceiving the marriage relation is also it would seem eminently greek and it leads us to consider more particularly the opinion prevalent in greece of the nature and duty of woman in general here the first point to be noticed is the wide difference of the view represented in the homeric poems from that which meets us in the historic period readers of the iliad and the odyssey will find depicted there amid all the barbarity of an age of rapine and war relations between men and women so tender faithful and beautiful that they may almost stand as universal types of the ultimate human ideal such for example is the relation between odysseus and penelope the wife waiting year by year for the husband whose fate is unknown wooed in vain by suitors who waste her substance and wear her life nightly watering her bed with her tears for twenty weary years till at last the wanderer returns and at once her knees were loosened and her heart melted within her and she fell a-weeping and ran straight towards him and cast her hands about his neck and kissed his head for even as the sight of the land is welcome to mariners so welcome to her was the sight of her lord and her white arms would never quite leave hold of his neck such again is the relation between hector and andromache as described in the well-known scene of the iliad where the wife comes out with her babe to take leave of the husband on his way to battle it were better for me she cries to go down to the grave if i lose thee for never will any comfort be mine when once thou even thou hast met thy fate but only sorrow thou art to me father and lady-mother yea and brother even as thou art my goodly husband come now have pity and abide here upon the tower lest thou make thy child an orphan, and thy wife a widow. Hector answers with the plea of honour. He cannot draw back, but he foresees defeat, and in his anticipation of the future nothing is so bitter as the fate he fears for his wife yet doth the conquest of the trojans hereafter not so much trouble me neither hecabe's own neither king priam's neither my brethren's the many and the brave that shall fall in the dust before their foemen as doth thine anguish in the day when some mail-clad achaean shall lead thee weeping and rob thee of the light of freedom but me in death may the heaped-up earth be covering ere i hear thy crying and thy carrying into captivity but most striking of all the portraits of women to be found in homer and most typical of a frank and healthy relation between the sexes is the account of Nausicaa given in the Odyssey. Ulysses, shipwrecked and naked, battered and covered with brine, surprises Nausicaa and her maidens as they are playing at ball on the shore the attendants run away but nausicaa remains to hear what the stranger has to say he asks her for shelter and clothing and she grants the request with an exquisite courtesy and a freedom from all embarrassment which becomes only the more marked and the more delightful when as she sees him emerge from the bath clothed and beautiful she cannot restrain the exclamation would that such a one might be called my husband dwelling here and that it might please him here to abide about the whole scene there is a freshness and a fragrance as of early morning and a tone so natural free and frank that in the face of this rustic idyll the later centuries sicken and faint like candle-light in the splendour of the dawn if we had only homer to give us our ideas of the greeks we might conclude from such passages as these that they had a conception of woman and of her relation to man finer and nobler in some respects than that of modern times but in fact the homeric poems represent a civilization which had passed away before the opening of the period with which at present we are chiefly concerned and in the interval for reasons which we need not here attempt to state a change had taken place in the whole way of regarding the female sex so far at any rate as our authorities enable us to judge woman in the historic age was conceived to be so inferior to man That he recognised in her no other end than to minister to his pleasure or to become the mother of his children. Romance and the higher companionship of intellect and spirit do not appear, with certain notable exceptions, to have been commonly sought or found in this relation. Woman, in fact, was regarded as a means, not as an end, and was treated in a manner consonant with this view. Of this estimate many illustrations might be adduced from the writers of the fifth and fourth centuries. Plato, for example, classes together children, women, and servants and states generally that there is no branch of human industry in which the female sex is not inferior to the male similarly aristotle insists again and again on the natural inferiority of woman and illustrates it by such quaint observations as the following a man would be considered a coward who was only as brave as a brave woman and a woman as a chatterbox who was only as modest as a good man but the most striking example perhaps because the most unconscious of this habitual way of regarding women is to be found in the funeral oration put by thucydides into the mouth of pericles where the speaker after suggesting what consolation he can to the fathers of the slain turns to the women with the brief but significant exhortation if i am to speak of womanly virtues to those of you who will henceforth be widows let me sum them up in one short admonition to a woman not to show more weakness than is natural to her sex is a great glory and not to be talked about for good or for evil among men The sentiments of the poets are less admissible as evidence, but some of them are so extreme that they may be adduced as a further indication of a point of view whose prevalence alone could render them even dramatically plausible. Such, for example, is the remark which Euripides puts into the mouth of his Medea, women are impotent for good but clever contrivers of all evil or that of one of the characters of menander a woman is necessarily an evil and he is a lucky man who catches her in the mildest form while the general greek view of the dependence of woman on man is well expressed in the words of aethra in the suppliants of euripides it is proper for women who are wise to let men act for them in everything in accordance with this conception of the inferiority of the female sex and partly as a cause partly as an effect of it we find that the position of the wife in ancient greece was simply that of the domestic drudge to stay at home and mind the house was her recognised ideal a free woman should be bounded by the street door says one of the characters in menander and another writer discriminates as follows the functions of the two sexes war politics and public speaking are the sphere of man that of woman is to keep house to stay at home and to receive and tend her husband we are not surprised therefore to find that the symbol of woman is the tortoise and in the following burlesque passage from aristophanes we shall recognise in spite of the touch of caricature the genuine features of the greek wife praxagora is recounting the merits and services of women they dip their wool in hot water according to the ancient plan all of them without exception and never make the slightest innovation they sit and cook as of old they carry upon their heads as of old they conduct the thesmophorii as of old they wear out their husbands as of old they buy sweets as of old they take their wine neat as of old and that this was also the kind of ideal approved by their lords and masters and that any attempt to pass beyond it was resented is amusingly illustrated in the following extract from the same poet where lysistrata explains the growing indignation of the women at the bad conduct of affairs by the men and the way in which their attempts to interfere were resented the comments of the magistrate typify of course the man's point of view Oh, think of our old moderation and gentleness think how we bore with your pranks and we're still all through the days of your former prognacity all through the war that is over and spent not that be sure we approved of your policy never our griefs you allowed us to vent well we perceived your mistakes and mismanagement often at home on our housekeeping cares often we heard of some foolish proposal you made for conducting the public affairs then we would question you mildly and pleasantly inwardly grieving but outwardly gay husband how goes it abroad we would ask of him what have he done in assembly to-day What would ye write on the side of the treaty-stone? Husband says angrily, What's that to you? You hold your tongue. And I held it accordingly. Stratullis. That is a thing which I never would do. Magistrate. Ma'am, if you hadn't, you'd soon have repented it. Therefore I held it, and spake not a word soon of another tremendous absurdity wilder and worse than the former we heard husband i say with a tender solicitude why have you passed such a foolish decree viciously moodily glaring askance at me stick to your spinning my mistress says he else you will speedily find it the worse for you war is the care and the business of men zeus twas a worthy reply and an excellent what you unfortunate shall we not then then when we see you perplexed and incompetent shall we not tender advice to the state the conception thus indicated, in burlesque, of the proper place of woman, is expressed more seriously, from the point of view of the average man, in the *Oikonomikos* of Xenophon. Iscomachus, the hero of that work, with whom we have already made acquaintance, gives an account of his own wife, and of the way in which he had trained her. When he married her, he explains, she was not yet fifteen, and had been brought up with the utmost care, that she might see, hear, and ask as little as possible. Her accomplishments were weaving, and a sufficient acquaintance with all that concerns the stomach, and her attitude towards her husband, she expressed in the single phrase, "'Everything rests with you. My duty, my mother said, is simply to be modest.' Iscomacus proceeds to explain to her the place he expects her to fill. She is to suckle his children, to cook and to superintend the house.' and for this purpose god has given her special gifts different from but not necessarily inferior to those of man husband and wife naturally supply one another's deficiencies and if the wife perform her function worthily she may even make herself the ruling partner and be sure that as she grows older she will be held not less but more in honour as the guardian of her children and the stewardess of her husband's goods. In Xenophon's view, in fact, the inferiority of the woman almost disappears, and the sentiment approximates closely to that of Tennyson either sex alone is half itself and in true marriage lies nor equal nor unequal each fulfils defect in each such a conception however of the complementary relation of woman to man does not exclude a conviction of her essential inferiority and this conviction it can hardly be disputed was a cardinal point in the greek view of life end of chapter 3 section 8 recording by martin geeson in hazelmere surrey